Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy Labor Day weekend. On today's program, I caught up with legendary comedian Tom Dreesen, who will be back in the Chicago area for a special presentation of his one-man show, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to preview the upcoming fall theater season. And later in the show, I'll take you with on my visit to Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. And I talked to the museum's executive director about the museum's evolution over the past 30-plus years. All that's coming up. Thanks for making time for Arts and Culture this morning. They call you Lady Luck. Comedian Tom Dreesen has lived an extraordinary life. Born and raised in South Suburban Harvey, Dreesen changed the trajectory of his life almost by happenstance. After serving in the Navy, he returned to the South Suburbs, got married, had kids, and played 16-inch softball on the weekends. His day job was selling insurance when he met a man named Tim Reed at a JC's meeting. Reed would later star on the hit sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati as Venus Flytrap, but in 1968, Dreesen and Reed were unknowns who realized they had some comedic chemistry and decided to put together an act. That decision launched a storybook career that took Dreesen to Los Angeles. He ended up appearing on The Tonight Show over 60 times, became friends with some of the biggest names in show business, and toured as the opening act for Frank Sinatra for 14 years. As you might imagine, he's collected a lot of interesting stories over his 50-plus year career. Dreesen has put some of them into a one-man show he calls The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. The Harvey native is bringing it to the Chicago area this week. He'll be performing at the Mackinac Arts Center in Glen Ellen on Saturday, September 10th. I recently caught up with the legendary comedian to talk about his journey from selling insurance to telling jokes in front of 40,000 people. You're coming back into to town for a show at the Belushi Performance Hall at the Mackinage Arts Center in Glen Ellen on September 10th. So what do you like to do when you come back to the Chicago area? First thing I do is, is go over to Gibson's because <laughs> <laughs> everybody hangs out. But then, you know, this year, as always, uh, when I come back, I'm, I'll throw out the first pitch at Wrigley Field on September 9th, the day before the show. Then I'll sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game at Wrigley. You know, Joe Montaigne and I are tied for the most... Oh, wow. Terry passed away, you know. And then just, uh, I just love Chicago. I love going back to Chicago. Uh, I miss Chicago. I've been out in California for 45 years now, but every day I miss Chicago. The only thing I don't miss is 40 below zero. <laughs> oh, really? Um, but you're a, you're a Southside guy, right? So are you, a, are you a White Sox fan? No, you know, the strange thing about that, I'm a Cub fan. But, I mean, I always root for the White Sox. In fact, Jerry Reinsdorf's a good friend of mine, and, and uh and I'll be having dinner with him, uh, as a matter of fact, when I'm in town. But for some strange reason, when I was a little boy, my dad used to listen to Cub games on the radio. I was like five, six years old. So I became indoctrinated in being a Cub fan, not knowing that I lived in enemy territory. <laughs> you know. By the time I was eight years old, I could take a punch, you know. 
Did I hear something like, are you going to stick around because your old high school is doing something for homecoming? Yeah, well, there, there's also a, yeah, there's a, uh, uh, the homecoming football game that I'd like to go to on September 15th. And then as well as uh, there's a Harvey Days that they're having on September 10th, the day of my show. So I'm going to go out to that and say hello to a bunch of old friends, but then I'm going to have to go to rehearsal. I'll only be able to say a couple hours and then go to rehearsal at the uh, John Belushi Theater, you know. Right. Which is really kind of fun because I knew John, you know, and, uh, and of course his brother Jim is a friend of mine. So it's going to be, I've never performed there before, so it's going to be interesting, you know. I'm curious, I've been reading about this uh, this one-man show, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh. It's you doing some stand-up, but there's also some production elements and, and storytelling involved. Yeah, w- what's happened, uh, you know, I toured with Frank Sinatra for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. And um, no matter where I went after Frank passed away, no matter what I was doing, they would say, hey, we're interviewing Tom Dreesen here on his comedy career. Tom, first of all, tell us about Frank Sinatra. You know? So every show that I went on, David, I did David Letterman's show maybe 50 times, and he always insisted that I do one Frank Sinatra story. So then I just decided to put together a one-man show, a 90-minute show. It could be easily be called From Harvey to Hollywood, you know, but I, I called it The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh because it's stand-up comedy. You know, for you know, a, a good period of time on stage. But then I segue to a bar where there's a bottle of Jack Daniels, which was Frank's drink of choice, and I uh, tell a funny joke at the bar, and all the lights go out in the theater, and then Frank comes on the screen singing to me like it's quarter to three. There's no one in the place except you and me. You know, and, like I'm behind the bar. When he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road. He goes off screen, and the spotlight it's me, and now I'm in a bar, and I've come home. And I tell the audience, the first time I heard that voice, I was 10 years old, shining shoes in a bar in Harvey, Illinois. And then I take the audience from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra on the jukebox in Harvey, Illinois, to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills, California. So I take them on that journey and with the stories, funny stories and poignant stories and lessons I learned along the way. And pictures are coming on the screen authenticating the stories as well as, as um, video of Frank and I. But it's also the stories of Tim Reed and I becoming America's first black and white comedy team, how I got into show business, you know, in Chicago and and, and that era from 1969 to 1975, what it was like touring as America's first black and white comedy team when there were no comedy clubs. So we worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit. And that's where, and eventually working the Playboy Circuit. So I take the audience on that journey. You know, it's it's really a a fun show. I love doing it in Chicago because that's where it all began, you know. Yeah, I would have to imagine when you come back to this area, it's probably a little more special. Oh, yeah, because they identify with a lot of the things that I'm saying from, you know, the origin of all this. And Frank Sinatra loves Chicago and had two hit songs, you know, My Kind of Town and, and also that song Chicago, you know, and love coming back here. So it's, it's a fun night, really a fun night. There's a few things I want to get into, but you mentioned uh, Tim Reed. I've read about that connection and... Is it fair to say that maybe if you and Tim Reed hadn't connected and, and gotten into comedy, maybe you wouldn't have gone down this path? Without a doubt, no question about it. And that I never, ever had any thought of ever being in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept I had. I was in the JCs, a civic group. And, and it was, uh, you know, I was going to go into the schoolrooms and, and try to enlighten the eighth graders before they went into high school some of the ills of drug abuse. And at that time, Tim Reed joined the JCs. He had graduated from Norfolk State College 
in Norfolk, Virginia, and E.I. DuPont recruited him into Chicago as a marketing rep. And he joined the JCs. He was out on the south side where I lived. And him and I got involved in this project, and the program became so successful. But we made the kids laugh. We went in there and we did a lot of stuff to make the kids laugh. We played music, and we played off of one another, you know. And uh, it went so well that one day a little eighth-grade girl was walking out of the classroom, and she said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a comedy team intrigued us because no one had ever done that before. So this eighth-grade girl gave us the inspiration, and, uh, and we decided to try it. But there were no comedy clubs. So we went to jazz clubs. You know, there were jazz clubs in Chicago. You know, Sonny Stitt. There were jazz groups that were working in, on the south side of Chicago. Sonny Stitt and Gene Ammons and Eddie Harris and people like that. You know, so we would ask them, when you finish your show, your set, can we get up and to you come up again? You know, can we get up and they say, yeah. You know, they say to the audience, you know, uh, we're going to take a little break here, but now, but we got a couple of friends here want to get up and make you laugh till we come back, and then that's how we'd get up and try out our new material. You know. Let's listen to a, a clip of Dreesen and Reed doing their thing. This is from a television appearance from the early 70s. Now you stand there. Give me some room now. I'm coming up. Watch my action now. Where we at? Uh, south side of Chicago. The south side? Corner 47 in Drexel. Come on, bus! Come on with that bus! Forget about the bus, man. Taxi! You waiting on me. I gotta get out of this neighborhood. Huh? I've got a heart murmur. Heart murmur? My heart keeps murmuring, get out of there, Whitey, get out of there, Whitey. Look, man, you're a black man. This is your idea. I'm already black. Now you wait for the bus. Hey, what's happening, Jive? My main man. Say, look here, baby, this is where I catch Big Mac. I gotta ease up town, get me some new rags. You know, a couple fronts, pair gators. Go check them traps. Do a little night crawling through the hood. Out of sight, man. I know you spoke a foreign language. <laughs> that was Tom Dreesen and Tim Reed doing a stand-up comedy bit on a television show from the early 70s. It's very difficult at that time. You've got to think of 1969, or you can't because you're too young. But <laughs> the thing, let me give you the picture of that era. Martin Luther King had recently been assassinated. Then Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. Uh, students were protesting the Vietnam War. I had just gotten out of the service. Students were protesting the war. All over the country, uh, African-Americans were rioting in every major city in America, including Harvey, Illinois, one of the largest riots in the country where I'm from, and all because they felt disenfranchised from the system. And, and in the middle of all this, we were going across the land trying to make people laugh. You know, we did 11 prisons in one year. Anywhere there was racial tension, we would go there and perform. We didn't preach. We just did our act. You know, so we, we would perform in, in 11 prisons. We did the county jail in, uh, in Chicago three times in one year. You know, we did Joliet Prison and Pontiac Prison and all over the country and, and just trying to make people laugh. I can't tell you how many times that I've t- I told a story that in those days, in 1969, wherever you went, people said, you know, we need better racial you know, we need we need more discourse among the races. Well, Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen were having this discourse America wasn't having. You know, they when we walked out on stage, you'd hear a hush in the audience. Oh, what's this all about? Because you didn't see a black guy and a white guy walking down the street together in those days, let alone on the stage together, you know. <clears throat> so that was part of our, our tough times of trying to get, uh, you know, America to recognize what we were doing. So after about six years... We did some national TV, and we, we had an album out, but Tim decided he wanted to be more of an actor, and, uh, and he went that way, and, and I ended up going alone. You know? 
Do you still you keep in touch today? He's the dearest friend in the world. He's like a brother to me. You know, uh, we're doing a documentary maybe about what it was like. You know, there's some people interested in maybe doing a six one-hour miniseries of what it was like being the first black-and-white comedy team, and history shows it's the last, you know. His children, you know, uh, Tori and Tim Jr., they call me Uncle Tom, which is a funny story in itself, you know. <laughs> You know, so we, yeah, we're, we're very close, and and and, uh, and he's like a brother to me. Everything I own, everything I have, everything that I have in my life, is because I met Tim Reed. You know, he, I, it totally changed the course of my life, and his as well. You know, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with legendary comedian Tom Dreesen, who's going to be back in the Chicago area performing his one-man show, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh, at the Mackinac Arts Center in Glen Ellen on September 10th. And so I know you'll probably get into this in the show, and you wrote about it in your book, Still Standing My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra. But I think I read somewhere that your first interaction with, with Sinatra was uh, in Lake Tahoe. Yeah, it was. People ask me all the time, how did you end up touring with Frank Sinatra? And I always say it's from being glib at the right time. <laughs> I, I had, uh, after I did my first appearance on The Tonight Show, a whole new world opened up to me. You know, I was doing Dinosaur, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. You know, I was doing all these shows. I'm the only white comedian ever to do Soul Train because I wow. had an album out in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. You know? <laughs> but anyhow, I was touring around the country with all these artists. I, I started touring with Sammy Davis Jr. and then Smokey Robinson and Natalie Cole, Gladys Knight and the Pips. All these singers that, you know, Frankie Avalon and James Darren, uh, Mac Davis, the singers wanted a comedian that, that um, wouldn't uh, you know, and hurt their audience, you know, that would get the audience up for them before they came out. And so I was touring with Smokey Robinson. I was in Lake Tahoe at Caesars in Lake Tahoe, and Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris Hotel. And I had worked Harris Hotel many times. So um, I could have went any night. Again, Gary, the irony of, of fate, the way things work in your life when you look back. I was with Smokey seven days at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. I don't know why I chose this night to go over to see Frank, but one night, it was like a Wednesday night, I said, I think I'll go over and see Frank's show. After my show, I didn't even change out of my show. Show, uh, stage clothes, I went out the side door and ran over to Harris Hotel and was running into the showroom because I didn't want to miss Frank Sinatra's opening. I had seen him perform and he created more excitement walking to the microphone, coming out to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. I mean, the, the audience would just go wild when he walked out. So I'm running into the showroom and the vice president of Harris Hotel was standing out in front with a, a big heavyset guy with a cigar. His name was Holmes Hendrickson, the vice president. And he saw me and he said, hey, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over there. So he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy in our business. So he said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. And I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard this a million times. And he, he winked at the vice president, but he looked at me, and I caught the wink, though. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> He said, oh, I like this kid. <laughs> and a week later, they called me and said, would you like to work one week with Frank Sinatra at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City? And I thought, yeah, I'll go there and try to get my picture taken with him and... Um, hang it in every bar back in Chicago, <laughs> in Dipton Steakhouse, you know, in every bar in Harvey. And so I, I went to do the show, and the second night I was with him, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner, 
And I remember like it was yesterday, in the middle of the meal, he put his knife and his fork down. He looked at me. He said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah." It turned into 14 years of 45, 50 cities a year in a friendship that that I'll treasure all my life. I, I would... You know, stay at his home, you know, five, six times a year down in the desert, down in Rancho Mirage. And we'd hang out till dawn, you know, right around the desert <clears throat> until the sun came up. Because he never went to bed till the sun came up. He was nocturnal, you know. Whether we were on the road or off the road, you know. And so it was it's just a great friendship. I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and I spoke at his funeral. And I miss him every day of my life. What do you think it was about your comedy that spoke to him? He he wanted a comedian that could keep coming up with new material because, as as you know, I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, and you had to keep coming up with a new six minutes every time you did The Tonight Show. So uh, And you couldn't do two guys going to bar jokes. You, know, you had to come up with original monologues. And so I was in a constant process of writing new material. And Frank liked that because we went to the same cities every year. You know, we'd go to Chicago every year, you know. We'd go to Detroit, uh, New York, uh, places like that. So he liked somebody who was fresh uh, with new material. And, and, you know, other things that, you know, I have, have um, three children, girl, boy, girl. He had three children, girl, boy, girl, you know. I grew up around saloons, so did he, you know, grew up around saloons in Hoboken, you know. I'm half Irish and half Italian, half Sicilian. He's half Sicilian, you know. I don't know. We we just hit it off and and had a lot of fun. And I made him laugh, you know. I, I made him laugh a lot, you know. And I think he enjoyed that. You have, uh, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but favorite, maybe top three favorite Sinatra songs. You know, people ask me that all the time. That's a real good question. But I always say, and this is the truth. I say it depends what mood I'm in. Yeah. Because his music is like the soundtrack of your life. You know, you, 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 when I, you dated girls to his music, you know, uh, you got married to his music, you know, love and marriage, you know, you, you got mm-hmm. divorced to his music, you know, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place except, you know, one from, you know, you got remarried to his music, love is lovelier the second time around, you know, it's just, uh, there's so many songs. There is a song that always gets me, it's called I Have Dreamed, it's from The King and I. I have dreamed that your arms are lovely And I have dreamed what a joy you'll be It's a perfect, perfect Nelson Riddle arrangement and Frank is perfect in the song and he slowly takes you you know, uh, to uh, to in at the, by the he starts out low and slowly takes you to the end to uh, uh, or he takes it up an octave effortlessly and you don't even notice it. You know, and then Nelson Riddle's arrangement, the crescendo at the end is it's a brilliant song. I have dreamed, but there's so many songs that I like. You know, sure, yeah, he's a master for sure. Well, the re- reason being, most people forget what a brilliant actor Frank Sinatra was. He won the Academy Award from Here to Eternity. What about a movie called Suddenly? What about another movie called The Manchurian Candidate? Another movie called The Man with the Golden Arm? Mm-hmm. He did over 60 films. So when you gave Frank Sinatra a song, to him it was a script. What did the writer feel the night the writer took pen in hand? So he would immerse himself in that lyric and become that lonely guy in the bar whose woman left him and he's never going to find love again. And you felt that. You felt that. And you felt the joy of his songs as well, you know. Frank Sinatra, when he was going to go into a recording studio, and he had this song in his hand, he would all day long recite it like it's a poem. 
and then he would go in and sing it. You know, like just say the song, "You will be my music, you will be my song." You know, when all the songs are out of tune and all the rhymes ring so untrue, then you, you will be my music. And then he would go in and sing it. He, he had a, a unique style. Charlton Heston once said, "To watch Frank Sinatra sing is like watching a four-minute movie." You know. It's like to be loved by you. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and you kind of referenced it talking about Sinatra's nocturnal lifestyle. How about you? You entered into this life of show business, uh, staying out late and working late, and then getting up at different times. Is that a challenge, adopting that, that type of lifestyle? It can wear and tear on you, and, but I, at that time, I was running marathons for multiple sclerosis because my sister Darlene had MS, so I would run 26 miles every year in Chicago, and people would pledge money for every mile I ran, you know. And so I was doing that, you know, and, and Frank knew that, but he still wanted me to hang with him, but sometimes I would <clears throat> then sleep in and then get up at noon and go do my run, or sometimes I would go right at 6 o'clock in the morning and do my runs and then go to bed, you know. So it, yeah, it can wear and tear on you, you know, uh, but you've got to stay in shape. To me, show business is, a, is, is not a 10K. It is a marathon. It's a, you know, a triathlon, you know. And for, you to, for me to have to walk out, you know, Frank Sinatra drew 20,000 people in arenas all around the country. In Hawaii, 40,000 people. And for you to go out in front of him and try to get that audience going and get that audience laughing and get them up for 30 to 45 minutes, you know, you better be in shape. You know, you can't be going on stage with hangovers and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. It was, it was something I had to learn how to do. I had to adjust to that, you know. Speaking of staying in shape, I, I heard that you were a 16-inch softball player. Uh, you know, the hardest thing for me, when I had to leave Chicago to come to California to try to make it and, uh, you know, to get to the Tonight Show, was leaving 16-inch softball. Because <laughs> I played, you know, like sometimes four days a week sometimes fives in, in tournaments, round robins, you know, in Trumbull Park and stuff like that. I, lo- I was a left fielder, and I loved it. I was a neighborhood guy, and so we, you know, we had, uh, I played in a lot of leagues. And when I had to leave, because I knew they didn't play 16-inch softball out here, when I came out here, I eventually got into a 12-inch fast pitch league, which was totally different from 16-inch softball in Chicago. But they had a, a, a league here, the Show Business League, 32 teams. And Billy Crystal had a team. Tony Danza had a team. And we had some real competition, but it was fast pitch. So I played left field out here until I was uh, 58 years old. I played in a basketball league in Van Nuys, California, until I was 48. You know. Wow. You're a big sports fan. Yeah, I, I, I never, I, I didn't have a childhood of that. You know, I, I loved sports when I was growing up, but I had eight brothers and sisters. So I shined shoes in taverns. And I set pins in bowling alleys, and I caddied in the summertime, and I sold newspapers on the corner, all to help feed my brothers and sisters, you know. And then when I was, I was a high school dropout at 16 and worked in the bowling alley, so it was time. I went, the day I turned 17, I went in the Navy, and I spent four years in the Navy. I served nine months in a Marine Corps unit uh, called NEGDF. But I played some basketball in the Navy and some softball when I could. But when I came out, you know, right away I'm married and kids started coming. So I, I didn't have that that chance to 
be a kid, you know, so I started playing in all the leagues in Chicago and all that stuff, you know, uh, much to my ex-wife's dismay sometimes. <laughs> so people can uh, can read all about it. Your book, Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra, is out everywhere books are sold, and then people can come see you in person September 10th at the Mackinac Art Center, the Belushi Performance Hall, the man who made Sinatra laugh. Tom, it's such a pleasure to, to talk to you. Gary, thank you. Gary, yeah, it's good to talk to you too, and I uh, hope you're coming to the show. Oh, and if yeah. you do, please come backstage and say hello. That was comedian Tom Dreesen. He'll bring his one man show, The Man Who Made Sinatra Laugh, to the Mackinac Arts Center Saturday, September 10th. You can find ticket info by visiting at themac.org. And if you're interested in learning more about Dreesen's remarkable personal story. His book is called Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage in Sinatra. So set him up, Joe. I got a little story. And a quick reminder to check out theartsection.org. You can find lots of information about all the features you hear on the program by visiting theartsection.org. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning. Happy Labor Day to everyone. I guess everyone has the day off except for theater critics. Uh, <laughs> our, our, you know, the, the wicked never rest, right? <laughs> It's well, it's such backbreaking labor after all, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's hard to believe it's already Labor Day. It feels like we were just talking about Fourth of July. And with Autumn at our doorstep, we thought now would be a good time for a fall theater preview. Carrie and Jonathan are going to talk about some of the productions they're most looking forward to seeing over the next couple of months. This might also be a good time for a general check-in to talk about the state of local theater. The arts sector has gradually returned to some consistency after two-plus years of ups and downs in regards to COVID spikes. And you two are back to going to the theater in person and are talking to the the people working at theaters. Are we seeing in-person audience numbers return to those pre-pandemic levels yet? Yes and no. I am, but it's it's kind of deceptive because... You know, Carrie and I frequently are at the the first performances, the opening night, where they generally fill the house one way or another. Uh, I have some anecdotal evidence because I've asked some theater managers and uh, executive directors when I've run into them at theaters, and uh, they have said that audience attendance is not yet back to pre-pandemic levels. One, uh, this was uh, this was some weeks ago, this might have been in July, said that audiences are only back about 50%. But I'm going to guess that that's going to increase uh, as we move forward because, you know, starting now, we're going to have the first full theater season we've had in two years. And uh, September, the September calendar, uh, my calendar, has more than 30 shows opening, which is close to but not quite back up to the the normal high number it's still a little bit below and i imagine that the league of chicago theaters will be you know tracking the, the stats to see uh 
how this first full return season will develop. Yeah, Carrie, and, you know, I, I had actually asked if the league was tracking that, and so far I've heard that they're not necessarily. Now, I think, again, it's important to remember that we don't actually have the equivalent of Broadway. So you have the Broadway League, you know, in New York, which tracks grosses and revenues and attendance because that's commercial theater. So it's, I think it's a little bit harder since you know, the League of Chicago Theaters does not necessarily function in the same way. What I have heard anecdotally is that they are looking forward to doing more. Obviously, you know, Chicago Theater Week came back this week. They're definitely promoting the industry as a whole. But I agree with you, Jonathan. It's a little hard to take the temperature of the room on an opening night because we are often there with, you know, people who've been Compton or, you know, people who have an interest in making sure there's a very, you know, full or full-ish house. Again, I would assume, and this is, again, anecdotal. I'm not a data scientist analyzing this that there is still going to be, you know, the, the, the big theaters, big shows that people see, you know, the event things are still going to do pretty well. I'm, I'm not so sure about how the mid-sized shows, newer plays, the things that are not necessarily seen as, you know, the sure bet will be doing. Uh, for example, with Wicked coming back uh, with Broadway in Chicago, well, people who love Wicked are going to go see Wicked, <laughs> you know. And, of course, the show's been around long enough now that I, much as I hate to say it, you know, people who are young people seeing it may have their own young people to bring now <laughs> to that. So, it's you know, the, things like that are sort of, I think, a, as much of a sure bet as anything can be. I was going to say, yes, I, I agree with you. And if anything, my take on play choices, programming, is that it's, um, it's you know, there's a lot of diversity, but I think it's a little bit more on the conservative side than uh, maybe we have seen going back several years. And Chicago's always had a very exciting mix. And you mentioned Wicked, so let, you know, let me jump in and say that people who love tried and true and familiar musicals uh, really have a lot to choose from this fall because a lot of the, the famous old shows are coming back. Between starting like right now, this weekend, running to sort of mid-November, one can choose among Hello, Dolly, out at the Marriott Theater, Fiddler on the Roof at Lyric Opera. It's opening the Lyric Opera season. A production of Little Shop of Horrors out at the Citadel Theater in Lake Forest. Wicked is coming back to Broadway in Chicago. The Lion King is coming back to Chicago, Broadway in Chicago. And Torchlight uh, at the end of October is opening a new production of Rent. So all of these are kind of tried and true. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I would also add to the mix of things that are opening. Uh, Paramount Theater in Aurora has become kind of a musical theater powerhouse. Last fall they opened with Kinky Boots, and it got, I think, eight Jeff Award nominations, the most for a, the most for a single production this last year. And Jonathan and I both greatly enjoyed their production of Kinky Boots. You know, I think what Paramount is doing is kind of interesting. Dreamgirls is certainly a well-known musical. It was turned into a movie in 2006. Uh, but again, it's you know it, it's a particularly uh, beloved story. I think inspired by the Motown and the story of the Supremes. And what I think Paramount has been doing this past year is kind of letting the big theater be for the big shows, and they do that very well. I think if you have not been to the Paramount, I think the quality of the production values, quality of the performances, always has been very high in my in my view. But then they have opened. It's always been there, but they've done a remodeling of the Intimate Copley Theater across the street. Right now, through September 18th, you can see their production of the Tony Winnie musical Fun Home, uh, which works very well in this intimate sort of venue. Um, so I think they've kind of taken what they call their bold series, which are perhaps 
you know, things are slightly off the beaten path, a little less well-known, put them in the Copley Theater, and then letting the Paramount sort of be the big, you know, the main Paramount, that glorious, you know, uh, sort of Moorish revival. I don't know how we would describe that architecture, but uh, mm. it's really quite an impressive venue if you've not been there. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Jonathan. I think the season has been a little more conservative in some ways, which doesn't mean there aren't shows that I'm looking forward to. I mean, speaking of Intimate, another show that I'm quite looking forward to is a revival of Sweeney Todd, which certainly has been done any number of times, but uh, Kokandi Productions, which has kind of been one that I've had my eye on, and I think you have as well, they're uh, remounting this in the basement of the Chopin Theater in, uh, in Wicker Park. If you've never been there, it's a very atmospheric kind of a place. Uh, that's opening at September 8th, so that might be kind of a fun, you know, Halloween pick. I would just say if they offer you meat pies at the concession counter, yeah. you'd be well advised to not take them up on that. <laughs> they could get some pierogi some from, from the Polish restaurant. Right the Polish is lovely, but yeah, check that yeah. out for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, Gary, did we, did we answer your question? Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. sounds like we're seeing people come back, but uh, we're not quite where we where we were two and a half years ago, or three years ago now, I should say, 2019, yeah. fall of 2019. Yeah. You've already kind of dipped your toe into the, the preview. Let's uh, continue. <laughs> Carrie, another musical I know you were looking forward to is an adaptation of the wildly popular board game Clue. Yes, and uh, Clue is at the Mercury Theater in Wrigleyville or on Southport. It's actually based more on the 1985 film, uh, which I think has become the source of a very famous internet meme of Madeline Kahn going, flames, flames on the side of my face. Uh, <laughs> that's where that comes from. I'm not sure if that's a musical number cause, in the show, because I've never actually seen Clue. But if you are interested in seeing uh, Colonel Mustard, Mustard with the Candlestick at the Mercury, Clue is where it will give you that opportunity. It's opening on October 13th. I, I was a great fan of the board game. It uh, occupied my, me during many uh, a rainy after weekend afternoon as a child. Um, so again, this is kind of a crowd-pleasing show, but I think, you know, it ties in as much as Sweeney Todd, which is in a different category, but is still sort of if you look at it, it has a seasonal appeal for fall, Halloween, whatever. Clue is very much in that, in that uh, category as well. Yes, you know, it was a rite of passage for me when I, when I, when I graduated from chutes and ladders to clues. I, you know? I used to fantasize, what would it be like to live in that kind of house? So I think it kind of sparked a lot of, you know, haunted house or murder mystery, you know, uh, obsessions that I've had ever since. So, um, to look at some of the the non musical fare, we spent a lot of time the first couple of minutes here talking yeah. about musicals. I think one of the highlights of the fall theater calendar is a is a a, a multi venue theater festival, and that is Destinos twenty twenty two, the fifth annual Chicago International Latino Theater Festival, and uh, this one probably will be dedicated to the co-founder of that festival, Mirna Salazar, who we lost just a few weeks ago and whom we talked about. And uh, uh, she was so very, very important to putting this festival together. Destiny knows 2022. It's the first live festival they've had in, in two years. And it kicks off uh, in mid-September, of, in about two weeks, September 14th. And it runs through mid-November at a variety of venues. There are 13 attractions this year coming in from Puerto Rico and Mexico and uh, other locations, plus a particularly large number of Chicago's Latinx theater companies who are participating. 
such as Ackley Hall and uh, the APO Cultural Center, uh, the Urban Theater Company, Teatro Vista, Teatro Tariakuri, uh, the Colectivo El Pozo. They are going to be performing a variety of plays at venues all over the city, from the far northwest side. Uh, the Paramount Theater that you just talked about mm-hmm. is, is in their small theater, is going to be doing a play called Bull, A Love Story, A World Premiere, that is part of Destiny House 2022, um, American Blues Theater, Goodman, all of them are going to be locations and presenters for the 13 projects of Destiny House 2022. Most presenters in English, uh, some in English and Spanish, some in Spanish with some English. Go to the website. The website is CLATA, C-L-A-T-A, CLATA, for Chicago Latino Theater Association. C-L-A-T-A, so the CLATA, and uh, look it up and you will find all the information about the 5th Chicago International Latino Theater Festival, Destinos 2022. I know that I will try, I won't be able to see all of them, but I certainly will try to see three or four at least of these yeah, productions. De- definitely a gem always of the fall season. You know, I know last, I think it was last week we talked about Chris Henderson, who's announced his departure from Chicago Shakespeare. You know, Chicago Shakespeare has the World Stage Series. For many years, the Goodman had a Latino theater festival. I look at the Destinos Festival as another uh, company, as another endeavor to really present world theater on Chicago stages. So, yes, there's a lot of local uh, Latinx companies that produce year-round and do wonderful work, but they also are providing an opportunity for international artists to come and introduce themselves to Chicago audiences, and we're very lucky to have that. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're previewing some of the theater productions coming up this fall. And we'll shift from Destinos to uh, some of the other plays you two are looking forward to. Carrie, one of the productions you wanted to talk about is something that's already opened at Lifeline Theater. Ms. Holmes Returns. Yes, this is a sequel to, wait for it, Miss Holmes, which Lifeline originally produced in 2016, written by company member Christopher Walsh. As the name implies, it's just a gender-bending take on the, the beloved Baker Street detective. She and her sidekick, Dr. Dorothy Watson, are out there solving crimes that, uh, you know, Scotland Yard either can't or won't. I understand the premise this time out is that they're investigating what is a seemingly clear-cut case of murder in which the accused is a young immigrant woman. But uh, Miss Holmes and Watson are not so convinced that Scotland Yard has the right person, and their investigations take them deeper into the grimy depths of London's underbelly. It's quite a lot of fun, as I recall from the seeing the first one, so I'm quite looking forward to seeing, you know, this sort of, you know, Victorian pastiche. And again, kind of in keeping with the theme of mystery, fall, picks. I think uh, Lifeline always does a lovely job with uh, literary adaptation, but this is an original take by playwright Christopher Walsh on the Sherlock Holmes uh, legend. Lifeline always does a wonderful job with murder mysteries and thrillers (laughs) also. That's part of their heritage. (laughs) Maybe they could have like a crossover with Clue, you know? Well, they could sell, you know, if they each could promote a discounted ticket for the other Although one, it might be more be appropriate time-wise for them to have a crossover with Sweeney Todd, you know, Miss yeah. Holmes has to go uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, however they treat it, I know that Lifeline's uh, take on things like this always is wry and enjoyable. Uh, and it's a good segue for me to go to some of the other plays this fall season that are out and out comedies. Uh, on the classic side, those who appreciate Noel Coward, 
uh, can uh, attend two of his best-known comedies, a production of Hay Fever at City Lit, the one that Howard supposedly wrote in three days. Hay Fever at City Lit is running now through the second week in October. And Raven Theater, also in the Edgewater neighborhood, uh, as City Lit is, Raven Theater is doing Howard's uh, sophisticated comedy of romance, Private Lives, opening at the end of the month and running into November. So that's a good classic comedy. A wonderful comedy writer, homegrown, Chicagoan James Sherman, famous for his successes a few years back, such as Bo Jest and uh, uh, Door to Door and The God of Isaac. He has a new play, which is having its world premiere, called Chagall in School. And it's about Marc Chagall, the famous Russian-Jewish painter. And this is set in 1920, when the brand-new Soviet Union government put him in charge of an art school for two or three years. So that's what Chagall in School, the title, means. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing this one. It's uh, being produced by Grippo Productions at Theater Wit, and it is uh, running now. It started this weekend and runs uh, until the first week through the first week in October. A final comedy choice that I'm looking forward to is Tiger Style, a play by Mike Liu. Mike Liu wrote a play called Teenage Dick, which was quite a successful production at Theater Wit. Just as we were coming into the pandemic, fortunately, they did a uh, they they filmed it in front of a live audience. They did a video of it, a very high quality video, and it enjoyed quite a success as a, a virtual as an online choice for theater wit. Mike Liu is a, an Asian American playwright, and Tiger Style is his take on a pair of squabbling Chinese-American siblings who were looking for someone or something to blame for all the problems in their young lives. So uh, Mike Liu is an edgy playwright. I'm looking forward to Tiger Style, which will be at Writers Theater from the end of September through October. I am looking forward to a playwright who's perhaps got a slightly higher profile, Lynn Nottage, no, no stranger to Chicago audiences, and particularly the Goodman Theater, where several of her plays have been produced, including Pulitzer winners Ruined and Sweat. Her latest, Clyde's, which actually opened in New York last fall, uh, returns close to the scene of Reading, Pennsylvania, which was featured in Sweat for our uh, listeners who saw that. But the truck stop cafe that gives Clyde its title is the setting for comedy, not the uh, kind of grim Rust Belt drama that dominated Sweat, despite the fact that most of the workers at the cafe are formerly incarcerated people. Uh, it, it's, a, it, it's a comic twist on uh, where their lives are at, what they're trying to do, kind of a slice-of-life workplace comedy. It made it, as I said, it made its debut last fall under the direction of longtime Nottage collaborator Kate Harisky, who is also staging the Goodman production. She's become practically, I would say, even though she doesn't live in Chicago, almost a house playwright at Goodman, so I'm quite looking forward to seeing Clyde's. Okay. And that's running September 10th through October 9th. Congo Square Theater, I think they've already presented what to send up when it goes down, but now they've partnered with Looking Glass Theater. Correct. Yeah, what to send up when it goes down was a Congo Square production of the plays by Alicia Harris. It had a relatively brief run last spring, and it was in small venues on the west and the south sides. It's now returning in a co-production with Looking Glass. I didn't get a chance to see the spring production, so I'm quite happy that it is returning. Um, it's described sort of as a pageant and healing ritual around the loss of black lives. There's sort of an agitprop sensibility. The show incorporates parody, song, poetry, movement, 
and definitely involves, you know, breaking the fourth wall. So you need to be prepared for that. Um, Congo Square made a point with the show last spring of telling non-black audience members that the show was not written for them, but they are welcome to watch and reflect on the stories of how racialized violence has affected black communities and how members of those communities are resisting and and uh, trying to be resilient in the face of that kind of violence. So I think um, it sounds like a very powerful and unique experience. And um, as I said, I'm looking forward to seeing what to send up when it goes down, which is opening later this month, I believe, with uh, Congo Square at, at Looking Glass. One question I had um, in pre-pandemic, I always enjoyed uh, hearing during the, our fall theater previews about the uh, kind of the Halloween themed when companies would try to program around Halloween and maybe put in a spooky uh, or supernatural production. And uh, one company that would always come up was uh, Black Button Eyes Productions, and I was on their website. They haven't updated since early in the year. Have either of you heard anything about Black Button Eyes? You know, I haven't heard anything there. I do know that Helena Handbag, which has done some Halloween shows, has a show called Frankenstreisand. I think we can kind of figure out what that <laughs> might be like. That's opening, uh, that's running the whole month of October at Redline VR. Um, I ha- yeah, but uh, Black Button Eyes, I have not heard anything lately from them. So it'll be, inter- it'll be interesting to see. There's also, I believe, a production of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Idle Muse is doing that at the edge off Broadway, and that's opening in late September. So there are, you know, some Halloween-themed shows in addition to the, you know, sort of murder mystery or, you know, uh, pieces that, that we've already talked about in this program. Yeah, I have not heard anything about Black Button Eyes. I, I hope that they will regroup and come back. They always did interesting work, often wonderful work, but highly original, and you and I both enjoyed their productions. Uh, there are not, to answer your question specifically, at least as of right now, there really are not a lot of Halloween-themed shows the way there have been in previous years. Mm-hmm. Maybe some will be announced along, along the way. And some that could be considered Halloween are not actually running through the Halloween weekend. Sweeney Todd at Cocandy Productions, mm-hmm. which Carrie already mentioned. Uh, and there's yeah, a production that, of Orson Welles' Dracula, uh, which right. is running through it's September 25th, so it's not running right. during Halloween yeah, at all. Sweeney Todd is running just uh, just past uh, into early November. Oh. But uh, right, the uh, the Orson Welles' uh, piece is not, and... Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde closes, I think, the weekend before Halloween, actually. Right, uh, right. Yeah, so yeah, that, that's the other one. But yeah, that's going through October up. 23rd, so, yeah. Yeah, maybe the Great Pumpkin will show up when we least expect it. Or maybe everyone feels like the past couple of years have been all so terrifying, why add <laughs> Right, <laughs> right, and I'm sure we'll see. Once... Uh, November, December rolls around. We'll see plenty of holiday-themed productions at the at the same I think level. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, no, the Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol, is not going to go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And arguably, you know, with ghosts, that that could have a Halloween aspect <laughs> to it as well. So. Still, lots to see this fall if you want to head out to the theater. We've thrown out a lot of names and 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 dates. But the most comprehensive list for, for listeners who really want to see all that's out there is the League of Chicago Theaters website and calendar, chicagoplays.com. Go to chicagoplays.com. Absolutely. And you will see everything that's opening, including opera and dance, which we didn't talk about at right. all, uh, all in, in, in the, you know, chronological order. And you can, you can choose by subcategory, musical, drama, comedy, 
children's theater, family theater. Uh, it's really a, 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 an information-packed website. Right. And you can find discounts to shows, too, through hot, the Hot Ticks links there. So that you know, even right. all the more reason to visit. <laughs> Sounds good. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. You're welcome. Thank you both. We'll talk next week. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. I'm Gary Zydek, and you're tuned into the arts section. Chicago has a well-stocked inventory of world-class venues to view art. Everyone knows about the Art Institute and the Museum of Contemporary Art, but a growing number of art enthusiasts are making a point to engage with a museum based in Chicago's River West neighborhood. There will always be artists in unexpected places, art made by unexpected creators. This is Deborah Carr, president and CEO of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. The museum, which was established over 30 years ago, is among a small group of institutions that focus exclusively on outsider art, or what the French might call art brut. This style of art is also sometimes referred to as intuitive, which helps explain the museum's name. But defining exactly what outsider or intuitive art is... That's a little more complicated. I recently caught up with Carr at Intuit to talk about the museum's past, present, and future. Intuit's a really special place. There are only a handful of museums in the world that focus specifically on outsider art, and Intuit is one of those. Uh, we're recognized around the world for that. And outsider art doesn't have a clean and neat definition. It's pretty messy, and the term is a little bit messy. But basically, we focus on art made by creators who don't come from the mainstream art world. These are people who are self-taught, who oftentimes have lived in difficult circumstances, poverty or homelessness or, or mental or physical illness, PTSD, incarceration, institutionalization, and they make art because they are so driven to realize their inner vision that they must make art. The history of the museum goes back to the the early 90s? Yeah, the museum was, was founded in 91, but I think that the story goes back even further. Um, there, the French artist Jean Dubuffet, who you'll know from the, the piece in front of the Thompson Building, he was an early advocate for this art in Europe and called it Art Brut. And he came to New York in the early 50s trying to advocate for this pure form of art as he saw it got very little traction, and he came to Chicago and gave a talk in 1951 at the Arts Club of Chicago. And Chicago was already thinking differently about art. Uh, the Arts Club had had a Horace Pippin exhibit. He was a self-taught self artist. And he talked about this, and, and it was there was a receptive audience here in Chicago. And then in the 60s and 70s, there were, there were teachers at the School of the Art Institute and at Roosevelt University who were really encouraging their art students to think differently and look differently, go to places like Maxwell Street Market, look at the, the funky, you know, junk and toy and, and novelty stores around Chicago and, and become collectors of things that look different. So there was already a lot of people here embracing this art and then in 1982, when um, Black Folk Art in America traveled around the country, it was a Corcoran exhibit, it didn't go to the Art Institute or the MCA, but it went to the Field Museum. And a lot of people got exposed to what was called folk art, but it really was this self-taught art. And 
those people that were enthusiasts for the genre and were really putting Chicago on the map as a place that was accepting of this genre and promoting it, decided to come together and form Intuit. In 1991, we were formed. In 1999, Intuit purchased the first floor of this building and it became our permanent home. And then um, in 2018, we took possession of the second floor of the building and now we're working towards renovating and making a larger museum. So what's the approach to programming at the museum today? Is the focus on contemporary outsider artists or is it more looking back at the history of outsider art? The, the breadth of our programs and our exhibitions really takes into account um, some of those um, historical outsider artists like our own Henry Darger, probably the most famous outsider artist in the world who came from Chicago, all the way to the programs and exhibitions that we're doing this year, which focus on, um, right now, living artist Roman Villarreal. We like a mix of both. We like to focus on new, newly discovered, living, self-taught artists, but we also mix that in with exhibitions that look at, at some of the um, maybe more well-known names from, from past um, discoveries and exhibitions. We, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things about outsider art is that, um, you know, scholars and enthusiasts ask, will there be outsider artists in the future? Will there be people who are not exposed to the mainstream art world, um, given the, the speed at which technology is, is in our lives and, and infiltrating sort of every aspect of society? But I think there are, always will be people who, you know, for one reason or another, are not exposed to the mainstream art world by choice or circumstance and become artists because they are so motivated to create that they must create. There will always be outsider artists. The term is problematic. I think people hear the term outsider and they think that we are pushing someone to the outside and if you're someone who is on the outside of mainstream society, it doesn't feel as cool to be, be there as maybe it does to those that are in the mainstream. We think of the term as a creator who is making their art outside the mainstream. And for us, that is a specific kind of genius, that they didn't have to be influenced by the mainstream art world. They didn't have to be influenced by other artists who went to art school, they are finding their genius on their own and they have to create and that is a really special thing about this art. And then as far as perceptions of outsider art from patrons and, and visitors and the art community, I would imagine those have evolved quite a bit over the museum's 30 plus years. So we've had enthusiasts for this art since you know mid, mid 1900s, but um, today, the mainstream art world has really discovered uh, this art and has really embraced it. So you can see major exhibitions. There's a great exhibition up right now at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, National Gallery, MoMA, Metropolitan Museum, the High Museum in Atlanta. All these mainstream art museums are doing exhibitions that feature outsider artists. The Art Institute did Joseph Yoakum, What I Saw last year, just an incredible exhibition of works by Chicago and Joseph Yoakum and, and someone whose art is in our collection. So there is a much wider acceptance and frankly growing market um, in, the, in the gallery and commercial world for this work. So that's one of Intuit's 
early um, goals was to shine a light on this work, bring it to more people's attention. We're still doing that. We're still finding people who've never heard of this work and are discovering it and are completely enchanted and moved by it. That's still our, that's still our mission, but it's, it's exciting to see that there are many more people who are coming to love and care for and popularize this work. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Deborah Carr, the Executive Director of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. The Chicago-based museum, like arts organizations all over the world, has had to contend with numerous challenges over the past two and a half years created by the COVID-19 pandemic. But Carr believes Intuit is coming out of the chaos better prepared for the future. I think like a lot of other museums, and I think particularly small to medium-sized museums, there were silver linings over the, the last two years. And for us, one of those silver linings was that we knew that we needed to get online with our programming. Uh, we are one of the few museums in the world that focus solely on this art, and we have an international audience. We have members across the country. And what the pandemic did was not only force us to get online with our programs, but it forced our audiences to learn how to um, use the technology and get online themselves. So it's really allowed us to have a more robust national and international audience. Chicago, um, this space that we're in right now, Gary, will always be our home base with exhibitions and our school and teacher and youth outreach programs. But now we can deliver incredible programs online to audiences everywhere. All of our exhibitions um, are now uh, made into virtual exhibitions that you can view online. So you can go back and see, um, last year we did three incredible Henry Darger exhibits and they're not lost now. They're online, you can go and see the exhibition, read the labels, see, the, see close-ups of the artwork, um, learn about those exhibitions. So I think um, in some ways we, have, we are coming out of this pandemic with a more strong museum presence, both here in Chicago and to our audiences everywhere. What was the response when you started to roll out some of those virtual programs? The response to our virtual programs was incredible. I think we closed to the public on March 15th of 2020, and five days later we had our first virtual program. And uh, the audiences found us, and they have stuck with us. And it's pretty great to be able to do a program and have you know, someone in Australia or someone in uh, the Caribbean on the program with you. That, that's really fun to see that we have these loyal audiences that come back to our programs over and over again. We had a, a program that we did in the past with members where we would do a, an in-person tour of some collector's home and see their beautiful art collection. I think that people love to be a little bit of a voyeur and go into someone's home and see the, the beautiful art that they have in their home. That's always fun to do. Well, we couldn't do that kind of thing anymore. Last year was our 30th anniversary. What are we gonna do instead for our members? And we started doing virtual video tours. So our members can join in, watch a, a recorded tour on a, a particular night. And then I do a Q&A with the collector. And oh my gosh, those have been so popular. We've been you know, we have our membership is up because people want to be on those tours and it's the strongest it's ever been. And we get, you know, between 50 and 80 people a night watching these tours and participating in the answer, asking questions and hearing the answers from the, the host of the tour. 
Now that we're kind of returning to the way things were pre-pandemic, uh, obviously COVID is still a reality, but people are more comfortable going out to do things in person. What's this summer been like? Things are opening up, but I think I think a lot of our older traditional audience aren't fully back yet. There are still, I think, some segments of the population that um, are more careful. But what that's meant for us is that um, over the last two years and continuing this summer, our um, 18 to 35-year-old audience has been way up, which I think is great. Most traditional art museums don't see, um, you know, 60% of their audience coming from that population segment. The other thing that's been exciting is that we have a focus on um, engaging more audiences of color. This work is made uh, by people of color more frequently than what you would see in a mainstream art museum traditionally. And uh, our audience of color pre-pandemic was about 30%, and the national average for art museums is more like 14%. But we've really been able to keep those numbers up, those percentage numbers up. So we see ourselves as one of the most welcoming spaces in Chicago. Everyone is welcome here, whatever their color, their socioeconomic background, physical abilities, mental abilities, orientation, gender identity. Everyone is welcome here. Everyone is, I hope, feels like this is a safe space and a welcoming space for them. That growth in uh, numbers with that younger demographic, do you attribute that to the shift to online things? I think the growth in the younger audience, I don't, I don't have specific uh, data on that, but I think that the growth in the younger audience is probably they're more comfortable being out and about when the pandemic started to ease up. And I also think it goes to the dynamism of this content. This is art that reflects, you know, lived experiences. Uh, the exhibit we're sitting in now by Roman Villarreal, he, um, he was in a gang as a young person. He saw his community damaged by drugs. This is really incredible uh, content. And it's very relevant in our society today as we're wrestling with, you know, social ills. I think that People are looking for more relevance in, in their lives, and when they come to into it, they see that relevance. They see that this is art that has, a con has content and messages and stories that uh, relate to the things that, that we're all wrestling with. You know, prejudice, gangs, violence, drug use, those are, those are issues that we're all facing in our, in our communities, and it's reflected in the art here. It's very, um, I think it's very, meaningful to come in and see these experiences. We do a program every year for almost 30 years. We've done a program with the Chicago Public Schools where we work with two teachers in each of 10 to 12 schools. And those teachers are taking the themes of this art and teaching this art in their classrooms, letting young people know that you don't have to have technical drawing or sculpting skills to be creative and have that um, release of stress and that fulfillment that comes from from making art and they're teaching that in their classrooms and then they bring their classrooms here when they can or they do one of our virtual tours online but we hear from our teachers that the young people say oh this this is art that i can really relate to this is like what i see in my community this isn't this is, this is something for me, not the same experience that they would have maybe in a typical art museum.
looking ahead do you envision into it continuing to offer this level of virtual programming or maybe some type of hybrid i think the museum will continue the hybrid mix we want to we want to recognize that some of our audiences want to be back in person but we also want to make sure that we keep the audiences that that have joined us online and make sure that we still have offerings for them um, for instance, we just had our, our big uh, gala in June, and we did it as a hybrid, and it worked great. So I think we still have to figure out how we do some programs in a hybrid way, which ones we keep fully online, and which ones we're going to do in person. A, a great example is a film screening. That's something that works really well in person, right? And, of course, you can go and find the film online and try and, and see it and join a discussion. But it's, I think, really powerful to be in the room with the filmmaker and, and view the film and then talk about the film. So that's one of the things that, that we'll be doing. We're also going to be doing um, a public trip where we take folks from Intuit down to Roman Villarreal's uh, studio space on the south, far southeast side and join up with community members there and get a tour, have an experience down there, and then bring that community back up to Intuit and um, take them home when it's, when it's over. So we're thinking about this central community here, going down to the south side, picking up the south side community, bringing it back here, and mixing those communities up. I'm really excited about the idea that some of our north, central, and west side audiences mingle with our south side audiences and have a great experience around this art together. That's Deborah Carr, the executive director of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art. You can learn more about the organization by visiting art.org. That's A-R-T-E dot org. That's got to be a pretty desirable web address. How many organizations tried to get art.org? And you can, of course, visit Intuit for yourself in person at 756 North Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m., for another edition of the Arts Section right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope you have a great week, and I hope you have a wonderful Labor Day weekend, hopefully you have Monday off. And if you're going to Jazz Fest, make sure to stop by the WDCB tent later today. Thanks for listening. ¶¶